Good day, sports movie freakazoids, and thanks for revving up your engine to hear the 25th edition of Squaring the Movies. We take an every other week look back at old sports films, and we spoil them from their hair to their toenails. This week we gaze at the sport of endless left turns as we review Days of Thunder. I'm the guy who asks a friendly rival to drive his car and then is never heard from again, Rowdy Ellis. And here's my podcast chum who's match-perfect and staggered special, Cole DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I've often been called special before, but never perfect, so it's kind of touching. I always love that line, match perfect, staggered yeah. special. Now, does this mean you actually want me to give you your car back? Because your lengthy absence after you gave me that car led me to believe it was mine now. Maybe Just... I should be there to celebrate with you when you win the race? No. I never noticed uh, that before. I liked all the glory. It was okay. I never noticed a Rooker's not there. He asked Cole to drive his car, and he's not there when he drives his car. Let me tell you, that Kia Forte, it is a Forte, right? It is a Forte. Just really handles those nonstop left turns. To quote Pretty Woman, it corners like it's on rails. <laughs> and also, I should know before this podcast gets going any further, Rubbin is racing. Ooh. Well, Rubbin... Is that a real thing in racing that you're encouraged, basically, or just it's okay to <laughs> bump each other off the track? Richard Petty, the actual Richard Petty, plays a race car driver who is bumped off the track, rubbed off the track, by Rowdy early on. What a tone that sets. Yeah. Isn't that the whole number one criticism of this movie, is that the portrayal of NASCAR is more skillless than it actually is in real life. <laughs> w- <laughs> WWF wrestling. Yeah, well, it's just, like, everyone's just constantly banging into each other all the time. And not accidentally. They're doing it on purpose. There's obviously a degree of contact in any racing sport. It's inevitable when you have that many cars going that fast and in a closed space. But I think there's a huge amount of skill in driving fast and making moves without making contact. Which is the point. There should be the which point. Which is the point. And it's funny because Tom Cruise was a huge racing fan. He got into it when he met Paul Newman on Color of Money, which we covered last year and you think he'd respect racing more than he does but he has a story credit in this movie he and robert town and town actually wrote the screenplay there's word about how town was basically writing day of a lot of the time and it wasn't really his screenplay originally but yeah. it's basically and i'll do my nutshell right now it's top gun and cars it is yeah it's, it's tony like- scott it's the same producers bruckheimer and simpson cruise they even have an Iceman type character rowdy sort of but more so as the movie plays out carrie always as russ wheeler is basically Iceman jr <laughs> except they don't reconcile in fact earlier in the movie before the end of the movie Cruz goes back on the track one of the many things that he would be out of racing for doing he's already under suspicion and already in trouble with the guy in charge Fred yeah. Thompson they already and, call him they say you're known as a troublemaker and now. the next race we see after that when Rowdy's not able to race anymore he goes back on the track and maybe justifiably so wipes Wheeler out could have killed him could have killed himself yeah. Why is he ever allowed to race again after that when he's already under suspicion and already in trouble with them? I also like the fact he goes to Robert Duvall's character, change my tires. But why? The race is over. Mm-hmm. Just change my damn tires. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you clue into something a little bit fishy going on if you're Robert Duvall, the savvy mentor, after the race is over and Kerry Elwes is doing his victory lap, your guy wants a fresh set of tires mm-hmm. so he can peel out? It's a little questionable. Yeah, Tom Cruise was going to be a big time... Well, he wasn't actually a producer on this movie, technically. Bruckheimer and Simpson were... But I read that he was effectively a producer way back around Top Gun. He would be in the edit suite, which actors don't do unless they're maybe the director. <laughs> Even if they're a producer, they don't get to be in the edit suite. 
And I think it's pretty evident by this movie that he had a lot of say. And it's funny, too, because Cruz was coming off of movies that meant more. Color of Money, okay, not deep entertainment, but he worked with a legend in Paul Newman and learned a lot from him and was his friend at this point. They lost contact, I think, through the Scientology thing when I was reading. Is That's why they're not really friends so much anymore. I think they were friendly, but they weren't as close as they had been as the years went on. But then he does Rain Man, one of the more consequential movies he's done even now. And even more than that, the year before this movie, Born on the Fourth of July. And yet somehow he goes back to this silly stupidity, which is even dumber than Top Gun. <laughs> and I like Top Gun more. This movie came about because of Cruise. Like you said, he discovered racing through mm. Paul Newman, and I think he went on the track with Newman. I was like, holy shit, we have to make a movie. The first scene we see him, he pulls in on the motorcycle. No helmet, which is galactically stupid. Yeah, Movies sunglasses, do it. Very Top Gun-esque. Later, we'll yeah, see, he does yeah. it in Top Gun, too, as well. Yeah. And Nicole Kidman later rides with him, and she doesn't have a helmet on. God, that's stupid. Okay, right. you're Jones for that beer, so I tell am, us what I'm, your beer is. This is the live transmission uh, oh. beer from Flying Monkeys. Talk about appropriate. Not dick trickle, but cold trickle. <laughs> really loves to blow out transmissions in his car, so I figured I'd give this one to go today. And your frosted mug. I'm drinking <laughs> rum and diet because I need to pick me up. I was on bed not long ago. I was napping, so I'm a little surprised I have this much energy. <laughs> well, calm down now. When I woke up, I was not there, but it's been a while anyway. He's vibrating out of his seat, people. So Days of Thunder was released by Paramount on June 27th, 1990. Almost 30 years now, isn't it? Man. Hard to believe. Yeah, we're so old. You can't say it was a big hit in America, but it made some nice bank worldwide. And it's actually Cruz's 16th biggest hit when adjusted for inflation. Number one is Top Gun, which is not surprising. And by quite a lot. As many hits as he's made, nothing comes close to Top Gun. No kidding. And really, compared to other actors, it's not like it's... I can't think of an example of this. What's a bigger hit? Dustin Hoffman, when they did Rayman together, I think my trivia question for Bev was, which of them has the bigger hit adjusted for inflation? And The Graduate is way higher than Top Gun. Okay. But Cruz has been a hit machine in his life, so this is only his 16th biggest hit, but still... But then again, you read online about how it wasn't really a big success, and I think the reason why is because the budget got out of control because they were so indulgent in this movie. There's all kinds of stories in the IMDb. Yeah. You talk about rubbing his racing. It felt like there was some rubbing going on, and the producers... Don Simpson one. especially. Yeah. He died not too long after this. He and Bruckheimer were a team for quite a while, but Bruckheimer was the more responsible one by the sound of it, and Simpson was the ultimate Hollywood cliche producer of just doing everything you could possibly imagine when it comes to what he was putting in his body and also just spending money on bullshit. And there's stories about how they fought with Tony Scott. Robert Town did too every day about how he was shooting the movie. They knew about movies, no doubt. Robert Town wrote Chinatown, for God's sakes. He has talent. But Tony Scott made Top Gun. He made other good movies before and he certainly would make other good movies after. I love Enemy of the State, one of my favorite movies he ever made. Let the guy make his movie if you're going to hire him. <laughs> so I'm a little surprised that none of the Mission Impossibles have outgrossed Top Gun. You know, Well, Justin for Inflation is the key there. Actual money, I'm sure they have. I didn't look that up. Oh, yeah, of course. They came out up to and including, what, this year or last year, the most recent one? Last year, 2019. Yeah. The amount of money you're paying to go to a movie is astronomically more than it was mm -hmm. in the late 80s. Even adjusted for inflation, like some of those Mission Impossible movies, especially I think the first one... The first one was a blockbuster, yeah. was a blockbuster, and the last two have done really, really mm -hmm. well also. Yeah. This is also Tony Scott's fifth biggest hit, Adjusted for Inflation. Top Gun, for him, was also number one, and also by quite a lot. Although I think something else, Beverly Hills Cop 2, maybe, did pretty well. So he was a hit machine in his own right. The critical response wasn't great, but this is one of those movies where the critics didn't like it, but the audiences basically did. 39% of critics, only 4.86 on average out of 10, yeah. but 60% of audiences. So they just barely get it in there with this. <laughs> Speak it by with a passing grade. Richard Petty, though, I said, is in this movie, and he was not a fan of it, I guess, even though he's actually in the film. We said, what was it, Lee Trevino was in Happy Gilmore, but in the yeah. end wasn't a fan of the movie, thought it was dumb and everything? No, I don't think it's unusual that you get professionals from whatever sport you're making a movie of to play bit parts and to add some authenticity to either the scenes of the sport itself or what's going on around it. 
but they don't necessarily know what the movie's going to turn out to be. In this case, I doubt many of the actors knew what the movie was going to turn out to be because it was just such a, by all accounts, an indulgent and never-ending production up until the 11th hour. It probably was still a little bit up in the air what it was actually going to look like when it released. Such a cliche, though. It's funny that this is what came out of it because it's the kind of movie you would expect this to be. Not just Top Gun, but these kinds of films. In the end, the guy succeeds overall. Both Top Gun and this and other movies, too, but especially these two movies. Cruz's character knows something other ones don't. He knows how to put on the brakes and they'll fly right by in those jets. No one else seems to know how to do that. And in this one, it's all about all draft behind other cars. Okay, if you really could do that, and I guess you can. You can. Why wouldn't anyone else be doing that? I think it's super dangerous. It may not even be legal in the sport. I don't know that um, much, so... You talked about Top Gun and the parallels between that. It's been so long since I saw Days of Thunder. I might have seen it when it came out on VHS. Probably it was 91 by the time this hit VHS. Mm. I'd forgotten how closely, and I guess it makes sense, Talladega Nights parallels. Because it is mocking this movie, Talladega Nights is. Yeah, the slingshot move they pull is the drafting move. Mm. And of course, John C. Riley is in both movies. You've got the hotshot open-wheel racer that comes onto the scene, and that character kind of gets split because it's not his character that struggles or ends up in the crash in Talladega Nights. There is so much about this movie that is paralleled in Talladega Nights. I think the difference is one is intentionally a comedy and one is just attempting to be what? How would you define this movie? It's not a comedy. It's not really a drama either. Sports drama, I guess. I guess, I guess that's a It's not a comedy. Story. There's laughs, and most cruise movies have some laughs in it. The guy has yeah, a sense they, of humor, but... There's some, like, yeah, that's kind of cute, smile moments. Mm. And it really highlighted for me how, how little I care about racing, because yeah. this had some of the better crashes I've ever seen on yeah. screen. But I still didn't really care about the racing aspect of it very much at all. Me neither. My dad's into this kind of thing. He's got this on TV when we visit more often than not, even in the middle of the winter. Although I guess this is a sport that can be done year-round. You can be in Daytona, Florida. Yeah. We, by the way, missed that by a couple months. I didn't know that. That was, I think, January or February. We could have covered this then, but we didn't. Because Daytona is what they race in at the end of the movie. That's the big race. That's the great but daddy. Formula One, Indy 500, that comes up pretty soon. So that's why we picked this now. Yeah, F1 no. race at Indy Maybe. is on the 26th of May, I believe. Maybe we should have done an open-wheel racing movie. If we were a little bit more gearheads, Ryan. Well, we certainly don't know anything about this. You've already made that clear. <laughs> I don't think this movie is deliberately campy, but it certainly comes across that way. Top Gun in its own way is campy, too. People have pointed out, Tarantino especially has pointed out before, that it's a gay parable. Yeah. Val Kilmer wants Cruz to, come on, join the gay way. And at the end, Cruz finally says, no, I'm not going to be on your tail. You can ride mine. <laughs> Which is not the dialogue, but that's what Tarantino's always said. I never saw that movie that way. And now when I will watch it, which I haven't seen in a while, but when I do, I'll definitely be looking through those eyes. That's also a very sexual movie. In fact, I'm going to say right now, rather than at the end of the podcast, about can you score? If you're not buffing somebody or wanting to buff somebody nearby when you watch Days of Thunder, then what's the point? The nearest living body, just go to town. <laughs> wow. Well, Top Gun's way sexier than this, I guess, with little naked shirtless guys. But yeah, Cruz at his physical you're... peak. Cruz was still not even, what, 30? He was still in his 20s? I forget how old he was, but... Kidman was coming at her own. This was her first big Hollywood movie. She got this role based on Dead Calm, an Australian movie she did a year before this, I think it was. Her and Sam Neill and Billy Zane, I believe, was in there. Yeah, anyway. I like that movie. I haven't yeah, seen that in a long time. A lot of people could have had the role, but they went with her instead. And then she became Mrs. Cruz after this. They so, were married for about 10 years. When you were talking about how sexy this movie was and how you... I was exaggerating a little bit, but... Just I, well, I, I thought you were talking about Randy Quaid and Robert Duvall, but you went, you went <laughs> a hard left with Cruz and Kidman. Okay. That's one thing I gotta say very much a positive about this movie, because... Overall, I'm a thumbs down, although I was entertained. I was entertained! <laughs> Are you not entertained? But basically, I'm a thumbs down. But Robert Duvall, big time thumbs up performance. Yeah. And yeah. I haven't seen the movie in its entirety in a long time. I've seen some of those movies you'll see on TV for 10 minutes or watch clips here and there. 
Duvall has always been a good actor, but this is one of his more underrated performances. He is so real in this movie. And you got to notice, if you haven't before, remember watching Duvall movie in the future? I've really noticed this lately when I watch his old performances. The paper I watched not that long ago, he's the managing editor or something like that. The Duvall exhale. The Yeah, yeah. He does that kind that. of thing a lot. It's an acting that. trope for him. But I think he's terrific in this movie. Randy Quaid's pretty good, even though he's gone nuts since. His character doesn't have a ton to do. He just sort of pops up for maybe four or five scenes at a time, yeah. or he's establishing a team. Or he has but if to... he didn't have faith in Cruz's character, then the movie wouldn't happen, because he's yeah. the one that hires this guy who lost his ride because of his con man dad. And of course, we know that Cruz had a bad relationship with his dad, Top Gun, complicated relationship with Pops, more so because the guy died in war. I don't think he was so complicated. Magnolia, obviously, is a movie yeah. where Cruz has daddy issues, Rain Man, certainly. And this, although they don't really dwell on it too much. That same day he wins his first race is when he reveals he had a bad relationship with his dad who conned him out of his ride. And he gets laid by the prostitute, which is a fun scene, but also sexual harassment, basically. <laughs> I don't think he objects too much, but she does grab him unasked yeah. on his crotch. Now, do you think Cruz... And you mentioned he was in the editing suite a lot. He had a lot of clout in this movie, clearly. Most movies he was making by this point. I was, I was reading. I read that years ago. Anyway, do you think he demanded that they really fixate on his crotch when the prostitutes reaching around? And I do find, think that finding <laughs> the hidden weapon and opening his pants. Come on, guys, let's get a real hog shot going here. Absolutely, and... I think that. <laughs> There's always been swirls of rumors around Tom Cruise, and one way or the other, I think we're both on record as being Cruise fans generally. Yeah, I do like him. This is one of my. Not the least favorite, but I wasn't huge on Cruise in this movie. I thought you were right in that Duval acted circles around him, and I think some of the supporting cast did well too. But Cruise himself, he was just kind of being manic Cruise for a lot of it. But in that scene, he seemed so out of it when the hot cop was groping him. Okay, I get it. You think you're under arrest, and then you've got somebody opening your pants, but... What did you think of his acting that out, his reaction, just laughing it off on the end? He didn't seem flustered, hot and bothered, totally nonplussed by the whole thing. He just leans back and laughs. Dude, some stripper cop just yanked your pants down yeah. on you and you're, yeah, good gag, guys. I'm saying the performance is not one of his best, not even close to. It's certainly in his basement of performances, actually, I would say. But I'll defend that moment in this way. They're probably drunk from drinking in the truck all that night. Oh, yeah, they were drinking moonshine, though. Right. right, so he's already drunk, so he's not necessarily in his right mind. But he's also probably just relieved that they're not actually going to be arrested for transporting across state lines. This isn't transportation, it's consumption. <laughs> <laughs> The tagline for this movie is, and it's actually on the poster when I watched it on demand, Bell on Demand, which, by the way, was jittery. I don't know how you saw it, but I thought maybe it was just the opening credits where mm -hmm. you see a Dixie Confederate flag, which I guess I shouldn't criticize too much. That's become anathema now. It wasn't anathema in 1990. But during the opening credits especially, it's like the image is jittery, and I noticed it later on in the film, so maybe it's just my on demand. I had to pay for the damn movie, and it wasn't the best picture in the world. But on the poster, when you go to pay for the movie, it says, you can't outrun the thunder. <laughs> Oh, it's so cheesy. Very it's so sexual nice. line. I didn't have any issues with that. And one thing that is interesting about this, and it would be kind of interesting to see how you would do it differently in 2019 or onward, right? And for a number of reasons, and you hit on one, the whole Confederate, white supremacist, you know, conflation of that imagery now more so than probably in the last hundred years. This was before NASCAR hit a boom, right? This is just before uh -huh. NASCAR went big across North America in the way that it is now, it was still kind of a regional sport. In the South, I would guess, right, especially? Exactly. And okay. so you see the Confederate flags, and that makes sense given the time, given the regional nature of NASCAR in 1990, and the origins of NASCAR being, of course, the bootleggers in the South outrunning the cops and all of that kind of stuff. 
And I think Tom Cruise's character actually touches on this a little bit when they talk about his past. You came from open wheel, you won this, you won that, you got fired while you're coming here, and it's because he wants to win the big one. And he talks about the Indy 500. It's telling that in 1990, when you've got the opportunity and you've got the bankroll, even if it's through your con man dad, to essentially put yourself in a race car in probably any racing circuit that you really want to, you go to open wheel in 1990 because it's the big racing circuit. What is open wheel? You've said this a few times. I don't know what you're even talking about. It's the type of car, right? It's like those F1 cars. If you see them, with sort of the very narrow bodies and then the, o- okay, the open right, wheels yeah. on the struts. So he did drive those cars. He calls them struts early on when he first was introduced in the movie to everybody. I didn't realize that's what the strut referred to, was that kind of F1 type car. Oh, no, no, that's a part of the car. That's what the wheel is attached to. But that's what open wheel versus closed wheel stock car. I didn't know that's what that meant. Okay. Yeah, so he has driven the more prestigious F1 type car in the past. Yeah. The character has. Huh? And he's been a winning racer, which leads into an interesting moment later when he's talking to Robert Duvall after he's blown out his car. Well, anyway, the whole point of that story, sorry, just to backtrack real quick, is that I think that's like a little bit of a nod to the fact that NASCAR was a little bit of a second-tier racing circuit to those F1-type or Indy racing circuits. But anyway, to go to the point about him, he's got racing history, because they don't really ever explicitly tell you how this all comes to be, right? Tom Cruise gets hooked in with Randy Quaid's character, Mm -hmm. and then Randy Quaid goes to Robert Duvall and says, build me a car, and then this whole thing takes off. And it all has to be because Tom Cruise has some success in racing, albeit in a different type of racing, but still racing. He's a free agent, effectively. Effectively, because, as we find out, like you said, his con man dad is blown up and he doesn't have a team to race for anymore. He's also a wild card himself, as we see through the movie. Right. You kind of take it for granted that this guy is a gearhead, much like us, Ryan. We love our cars. We're always adjusting the Johnson rods on our respective Hyundai's and Kia's. <laughs> Funny you say that, though, because he admits more than once in the movie that he doesn't know anything about cars. Yeah. And yet he says more than once, there's nothing I can't do in a race car. So if you're that good at driving a car, you don't learn at some point in the course of a few years, however many years he's been doing this, what's inside of them, what makes them tick, what makes them work. I can buy that because if you're a rich kid, like a daddy's boy, who's been bankrolled by your con man dad to drive a car because you apparently like to drive and you're naturally talented at it, I get that. You're the spoiled rich kid that just wants to get on the track and drive. We have a friend who's a race car engineer. Right. And that is exactly how you get into racing these days anyway, because you need to have so much money to bankroll yourself, is that a lot of these kids on what amounts to like the minor leagues for racing circuits, indie lights or something as a feeder league to indie car circuit, you are usually a rich kid. Mommy or daddy has bankrolled you because you want to race, and so they're going to pay the team half a million dollars to let you race for a year. Doesn't mean they know jack shit about the engineering of the car or what's actually going on, but they just want to race. And in Tom Cruise's character's situation, he just happens to be damn good at it. And I thought it was a really cute and effective character moment for him to turn to Robert Duvall and say, I'd love to help you, but I just don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm good at driving, but I don't know the damn thing about the car. I didn't know that depth. I'm going to maybe blow your mind. I've done that a few times in the last few podcasts. Well, don't have it blown yet. Maybe I won't. Put it back in. Nice. Very nicely done. Where are the visuals for something like that? He did that very well. Filmmaking, which of course Cruise and everybody else in this movie had been doing for a long time. Duval for decades at this point. One of the ways you get into a union in Hollywood, probably still true, certainly was for a long time. One of the reasons why it's so many white guys even now is because you know somebody and often it's family. So if you want to be a gaffer, you want to be the cameraman, mm-hmm. you want to be the editor, you want to be... Anything, but especially some kind of tech person, not necessarily the glamour positions like cinematographer and whatnot. It's who you know. And it's also family members, and it's the probably rich people that are getting in to do this. And that's one reason why you don't have, even now, that many people who don't look like you and me. 
No kidding. So, so is your mind sort of blown? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just I, saying. I, that... I forgot I sucked it back in there, so let me just blow it out. <laughs> re-blow? Of, yeah, re-blow it. If I wanted to follow, because neither of us really knows anybody in the biz, so to speak. So Which one? Racing or movies? Movies. Well, I guess we sort of do, but... If I wanted to pursue my dream, my Joey Tribbiani-esque dream of becoming a stunt ass in movies, I have to know somebody... He's also order... a stunt ass. <laughs> Damn it, Ryan! Still the way of the world. That is changing, though. I think maybe Frances McDormand at the Oscars a couple of years ago when she said inclusion rider is to combat things like Mr. DiGregorio, Mr. Ellis got us doing what we're doing. That's not what's happened in our careers, but that was the case so often. So maybe there's some kind of subversive thing going on by the filmmakers with that in this film. Years ago, when I went to Canada's Wonderland, which is Canada's version of Disneyland, I haven't been there in a long time, but when I was 15, 16 years old, there was a ride based on this film. It must have been not too long after. No, I had to be older than 16, I guess, because I was 16 in 1990. Anyways, a Days of Thunder ride. That's become common at Wonderland and certainly common at Disney World Disneyland. The field of vision was almost like IMAX. All you could see was this movie, the racing scenes only, obviously. Not too many scenes of crotch grabbing and <laughs> concussion syndrome type stuff, post-concussion syndrome. So you sat in a seat and a hand grabbed your crotch as that scene played in the movie? <laughs> at that age, I would have loved it. But anyway, it's a very interactive ride, and the thing moves you around a little bit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you ever go on that ride? I remember when that ride existed. I never went on it. It was in the same general era as the Top Gun roller coaster existing. But that was back when Paramount still owned a stake in Wonderland at that point. So okay. I don't think any version of the Days of Thunder ride exists anymore. Roller coasters that stick around forever get rebranded as Flight Deck or something generic. Sure. But it sounds very much like the Universal Studios Back to the Future type rides, right? Where you would sit in there and you see scenes of the movie coming at you. And I think these days it's more Transformers and those oh, kinds of things yeah. are, are what's going Harry on. Harry Potter probably Harry has Potter, one. absolutely, yeah. Well, let me try to maybe possibly blow your mind again. Oh, man, let me just pick up the pieces before you do. <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer produced this movie with Don Simpson. But Bruckheimer, after Simpson had died, went on to produce Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, this movie was a movie before it was a ride. Mm-hmm. But then the ride, Pirates of the Caribbean, was a ride before it was a movie. And Bruckheimer was involved in the both. So maybe he learned from this experience and said, hey, they made ancillary profits uh, after our movie by making a ride that probably did pretty well at the box office at Wonderland and wherever else it was. Maybe it was at Disneyland. I don't know. But then the ride, which people liked and all, but they said, how do you make a movie out of that? And look at how successful those movies were. All right. I see where you're going with that. I was, so maybe Bruckheimer learned. When I came here today, right, I wondered why you had all the newspaper clippings about Jerry Bruckheimer up on your walls with red pieces of string attached to all of them and Wonderland this, but now it makes sense. That's a murder plot, but... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it all ties together, right? I'm noting myself in the podcast. It has multiple uses. <laughs> we talked a lot about how Cruz is a big race guy, and he has been ever since this movie, and if you've seen Mission Impossible Fallout and the other Mission Impossible movies, you'll see just how nuts this guy is doing his own stunts. He was probably a daredevil before this, but racing is really what got him into... Daredevilry, right. if you will. Right, so let's drive hundreds of miles an hour around a track, which doesn't have to be dangerous, but it certainly isn't the safest thing in the world. He did have a stunt driver in this movie, though, Greg Sachs, but he wouldn't need or want one now. I bet he would refuse that. I'm sure the filmmakers don't love that he does so many crazy stunts in the Mission Impossible films. He could die one of these days. It will not shock me if we hear some day in April or May or December or whatever when he's making some movie, whether it be a Mission Impossible film or whatever. After Tom Cruise died today, because he is really risking death, and I'm sure he was pissed he couldn't drive because he wanted to make this movie because he loved racing. Yeah. That wouldn't happen now. There'd be no stunt driver. Well, of course, he famously shattered his ankle doing some jump from one building to the other mm-hmm. while filming Mission Impossible. But are you saying, Ryan... That Tom Cruise needed to get somebody else's sacks in order to do the drive in this movie. I am saying that. But subsequently <laughs> discovered his own sack 
in time to do the stunts for his future films. Oh, I bet he had the sack already, but they wouldn't let him do it. <laughs> I really don't know how well, he gets away with it on these more recent movies. If we could track down the actress that played the prostitute that gave mm-hmm. him the grope in She's this scene. She's cute, too. She could tell us whether he had the sack <laughs> in this movie, I'm sure. Of course, there'll always be the rumors that Cruz is not into her or into Nicole Kidman, but I don't buy that stuff. I've always thought, if anything, Cruz is asexual rather than homosexual. But regardless of what he is, it's none of our business. Doesn't Why do matter. we care? It never should have mattered. Just because I made the juvenile crack about the whole prostitute scene and the following of him during the cop pullover. What did you think about the callback later with Nicole Kidman's character when Tom Cruise sort of grabs her hands like, isn't this what you really want? And I laughed at that when I saw the movie was, years ago. Not so much this time watching it. But... It was a cute moment, not so much for what he did but the fallout to it afterwards when she leaves and everyone's cracking up and you can just see him hanging his head get out oh my god (laughs) well she does grab that crotch plenty later on because they become an item and one of the most quotable lines nicole kibben's ever had it's her accent so i shouldn't mock it but i always remember from this movie cole let me out of the car let me out of the car cole out of the car that's true (laughs) now what the hell was going on in that scene a taxi driver nudges him so he reverses hard into the taxi driver, and then the taxi driver just peels the fuck out like he's got the mob after him or something. <laughs> How is your reaction not to get out of the car and say, what the hell did you just do, dude? Your reaction is to just peel out and just book it down a main street? It was the most bizarre thing. I... What's well, what he does. He's racist. No, not, not, not cool, but... Not Tom Cruise. I'm talking about the taxi oh, driver. Yeah. I thought for sure that was some sort of subplot. It would have been like the taxi driver was a goon of some rival. It's uh, Russ Wheeler in disguise. Yeah, something like that. Nothing. And then, of course, they just pull over because she wants to get out of the car, Cole. (laughs) So he just pulls the car over, and then that's it. And then we never hear from the taxi again or what's become of the car. I also would have loved some closure from the rental car company about the yeah, damages. That seems fun, but really dumb. They're sitting down to dinner, and a representative of the rental car company shows up with a bill for the cost <laughs> of the two cars. That'll be $40,000, please, sir. <laughs> you hear about how people will get insurance on cars, and often in filmmaking, another maybe mind-blowing thing here. You read sometimes in movies, not this one exactly, because this had a big budget, but some no-budget movie where people will go rent cars, and they'll do their scene, whether they meant to or not, the car gets damaged, maybe badly damaged, but they take it back, and maybe back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, this was a different thing, but I would think you'd have to pay for that if something badly... They make you look at every little scratch on a... I haven't rented a car in a long time, but when I used to, before I had my own car... You have to circle the car with the guy. Okay, there's this little scratch in the bumper right here. So, I don't know. How do you get away with... (laughs) But I've read this before with films. Not this one, but where they will deliberately damage the car for their movie and then take it back as if, well, it didn't cost us anything. Shouldn't it have? I assume you pay for the insurance on the car and then the insurance company pays for it. You remember the early Seinfeld episode where Seinfeld's renting a car... I reserved a car, but you don't have one. I think you've missed the point of the reservation. That's a great scene. And they offer him the insurance on the car. And he goes, yeah, you better give me that insurance because I am going to beat the hell out of this car. (laughs) Do you think that when Rowdy and Cole walked into the rental car agency to rent the two cars to race... (laughs) (laughs) Do you want the insurance, gentlemen? Uh... Yeah, you better give us the insurance. Lots of yeah, insurance. yeah. What's the most you got? And then they bond over that because they are such fierce rivals to the point where they don't get in a fist fight, but they might as well. But they're friendly rivals from that point on. Yeah. And Cole has such almost love for Rowdy. They're palling around when Cole starts dating Dr. Claire Lewicki. <laughs> and they go see Rowdy, who seems to have CTE, post-concussion symptoms. And when Cole walks into his house, I think it's the last time we see him, I think it's the scene where he asks Cole to ride his car for or drive his car for him. Jenny is her name, the wife, is sitting there on the couch like she's cowed and scared. Did I misread that? Because if I didn't, it reminds me a lot of the scenes in Concussion, 
Will mm. Smith football movie, which maybe we'll cover one day. One of the more underrated football movies. But Will Smith is really good as the doctor that discovered that football is causing brain damage, guys, badly. These people are living in cars and going nuts and threatening or even killing family members because their brains are insane. I wondered if the movie was implying, it's actually pretty deep for this movie, that Rowdy has got that and his family is scared of him now. The actress that played his wife played a very subdued reaction to Tom Cruise coming in. In that scene, but earlier, that scene. earlier on when they knew each other, everything was fine. Yeah, I wasn't sure, to be honest with you, whether that was intended in the way that you're describing. And it could be. I could definitely read it that way. Or whether it's because, whereas earlier they were buddy-buddy, then Rowdy had his collapse and it comes to light that he's got brain trauma. And he's never going to race again. He's never going to race again. And Rowdy later says, when he asks Cole to drive his car at Daytona, because he needs the money, he needs the sponsorship, because he says he's up to his eyeballs in debt, and they're building a new house and all this, his wife was concerned because she can see the writing on the wall. She knows that he's never going to race again, and she also presumably knows how much money they owe people and what they're attempting to do. And if he can't race, what does that mean for their family? So I didn't know if it was meant to be she's quiet and reserved and sort of cowed, not cowed, but... Just worried. Drawn in and worried, right? More so than it is intense and withdrawn because maybe he'll fly into a rage at any moment. Okay, maybe they had an argument about money five minutes before when he happened to walk in. Yeah. But I just got that feeling that that was maybe what was going on with this movie. Then again, we didn't know what concussions really were all about back in 1990s. But he seems to have the type of CTE that's the really serious one. Oh, where yeah. You suffer way more than just, okay, you're out of action for a few weeks and whatever your sport is, racing, baseball, football, whatever it might be. And then you go back to normal. I don't know how Sidney Crosby is still playing hockey incidentally because it looked like his career was going to be over. The hockey player was going to be over a few years ago and he's still playing at a pretty high level he must have recovered from it and yet you'd hear about people in that movie concussion like the center mike webster for the pittsburgh steelers that was based on reality and the other guy dave dewerson blew his own head off junior Seau. rowdy seems to have that kind of cte you can go down a laundry list of players a guy like aaron hernandez of course who right i don't know if he actually got convicted of murder but i think he did actually but he would have if he didn't kill himself in prison but then of course it comes out that he had incredible brain trauma that no doubt contributed to his actions And this movie is a little bit prescient in terms of the brain injury phenomenon and what we would later learn to the point where they're doing brain scans and they're putting up on the wall and Nicole Kidman's character is talking about you're not getting back on the track until you can prove to me that you're healthy again. This is still very much, and would be for another 20 years probably, in an era where it's shake it off and get back out there. You rung my bell. Yeah, you rung my bell. That's, of course, the common phrase in any number of sports for having a concussion. I got my bell rung. Well, you got a traumatic brain injury. You should be in a dark room and probably recuperating or out of the sport. I think you're right that this movie really was a little bit ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Comedic moment in this movie. (laughs) No, comedic moment when he is being inspected by Claire at his house. Cole goes in the bathroom and pukes, but then... Did you go in there and puke? No. Clearly he did. <laughs> you Re- can hear the flushing. Right. Reminded me of a story. It's so cute. I love the story so much. My cousins must have been maybe young teenagers, but they were still in high school, I guess it was. Maybe grade school. Anyway, they were young. One of them got sacked by a guy. His brother, my other cousin, cried for him. It's almost like, he can't cry, so I will. I always thought that was so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they had a very special connection. So Cole was effectively crying for Rowdy. Okay, we were just talked a minute ago about some serious issues, and that was comedy. Let's go back to more seriousness, because John C. Riley only his third movie. He's in Talladega Nights, incidentally, another racing movie, yep. mocking this one. But Buck Brotherton's his name. His father was Buddy Brotherton. Now, here's one of the things about the movie. I have so many reasonably good questions I could ask. Here's one of them. Cole has known Buck for a long time at this point, at least months. 
And only on, I think it's on that same night, he wins the race. He gets laid with a hooker. He talks about his dad. All that stuff happens. And I think it's that same scene where he talks to Buck about, oh, your dad was Buddy Brotherton, the guy that Harry Hogg, Duvall's character, worked for before. And there's this whole scandal with Duvall and that whole thing. Bit of a cover-up, it almost seems like Duvall ran away. But why wouldn't he have asked his new friend about this uncommon name, Brotherton, which he would have known about. He knew who Buddy Brotherton was. (laughs) Until months later. Maybe Cole's just a... Well, I mean, I think it's pretty evident that Cole is a bit of a dick. So he just didn't ask a lot of questions about the guy's history. But you're right, Bretherton is not a common name. you think he would maybe pick up on that. Is John C. Riley's character meant to be a little slow or something in this movie? Well, maybe. Riley plays that well. Riley's a funny guy, but he's often played what seemed like Cro-Magnon dumbasses. But in that exchange with Tom Cruise where he finds out about Buck's father and the crash and all that, there's some back and forth that's mostly Cruise and then... Duval's character sort of interjecting into the conversation. Your dad has got a died last year at Daytona. How? Well, he hit the wall and then you get Duval saying, well, no, he was probably dead already. Heart attack and all that. And then we later find out that's probably bullshit anyway. But throughout that whole exchange, John C. Riley is just dumbly nodding along as if uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you get the pulled over scene and then mm-hmm. it's over. I thought it was a really odd reaction having somebody say, your dad that died on the track, and incidentally, you're still working in NASCAR, last year died, and it's not my fault. There was no reaction from John C. Riley. This is the problem with shooting a movie on the fly, and maybe that scene was shot weeks before or weeks after the scenes that followed where they maybe, maybe. would have followed up. It's not like Riley's in the movie all that much either. That's probably the most acting he has in the whole film, other than just reaction shots. Yeah, he kind of pops up briefly here and there, but he doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't even matter within the context of the movie whether or not Buck is a little bit slow or whether or not his father was a famous racer that died. It doesn't really mean much except that it's foreshadowing the crash to come for Tom Cruise. Right, which is a wall. vicious crash, sure. Here's some more comedy, though. I love this moment. And we <laughs> talked about, <laughs> we talked about <laughs> scoring at the movies. When Harry says to Rowdy when we first meet Rowdy, Harry says, you're the one looking good. Obviously, he means racing his car. But talk about Top Gun type... <laughs> What do you want to call it here? The Tarantino thing. You can ride yeah. my tail anytime type of stuff. And then Cruise rides in on his phallic motorcycle with his hair flying everywhere. Tom Cruise did have some fantastically feathered hair. It is just flowing every which way all the time. Mm. The only way that scene you're describing could have been better is if they were all just wearing cut-off jeans and shirtless and oiled up and Rowdy gets out of his NASCAR just greasy and oozing out. Brings a volleyball out. (laughs) Playing with the boys. And then they start high-fiving each other as they go by. (laughs) I feel the need, the need for speed. This movie does have a great generic late 80s, early 90s rock soundtrack to it, though, mm-hmm. I gotta say. Some fun songs, some classics, of course, too. There are a few, not a ton, but it's just like hard late 80s power riffs that aren't necessarily part of a song, but during a scene you just get the wow. Mm-hmm. Well, Hans Zimmer did the music score for this. We've done a lot of his movies lately between you, me, and Bev. We've covered him plenty of times. Cool Running, he did the score in that. We did that back in yeah. January. Composer on Driving Miss Daisy, Bev and I did in February. He did yeah. League of Their Own, another sports movie, which Bev and I covered a couple of years ago, and plenty of other films we've covered in the past, Lion King and whatnot. Welcome to the Zimmer cast, where we talk he about... He's done more movies than you think. I think we've probably unintentionally covered more of his movies than John Williams at this point, between you, me, and Bev. Wow. Now, here's another reasonably good question. Harry didn't think to mention to Cole before the first race that stock cars rub each other. I know they're playing that for dramatic effect, but you never think to mention, yeah, he didn't bump you, he didn't hit you, he rubbed you. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> it doesn't feel like there was a lot of coaching that happened between the like test run and actually throwing him into a live race. 
Is there not some sort of qualifier that you have to go through in order to get your car into an actual NASCAR race? The car and you have to pass the tests, I guess, yeah, and be good enough. I would think so. It sounds like it's his, Cole's, first experience in a live stock car race is when he's actually racing in a NASCAR race. And I feel like there's got to be an intermediary step there somewhere. You don't walk into a PGA event with a set of golf clubs and say, one, please, and then like walk out <laughs> onto the first tee. You have to qualify. and Even if you clearly, in your golf analogy, can drive the ball 400 feet, you still need to prove more than just that. If you can drive the ball 400 feet, Ryan, you are a piss-poor golfer. Okay, 600 feet. I don't know how far golf <laughs> shots are. 300 yards. Oh, sorry, yes. I have the wrong yardage. Yardage, feetage. there we go. <laughs> Not feetage either. But in the end, just like in Top Gun, Cruz has to overcome his demons to be good again. He should be saying, talk to me, Rowdy. Talk to me, Rowdy. <laughs> and putting his dog tags in his hand. <laughs> but again, Rowdy's forgotten after he asks Cole to drive his car. He's never mentioned in any way whatsoever. Obviously, Cole's got issues in that last race that he does win. He's concerned about going through a crash site, as he should be. I don't blame him for being worried about that. But once he goes through, everything's completely fine. Just like in Top Gun, where he peels off and doesn't help Iceman and the other guy. Well, mostly just Iceman and Slider, I guess it is. From being killed in real battle. And then finally, it's, talk to me, Goose. He's completely fine from that point on. It's just Top Gun and cars, man. Rowdy's name really should have been something like Rowdy X Machina or something. Tom Cruise wrecks the two cars that his team's owner runs because he's pissed off with Russ and the way that Tim's bought the second team and all that kind of bullshit. So all of a sudden, there's no cars to run, right? So Tom Cruise, again, is out of a car, but then, of course, Rowdy, essentially, to the rescue, and here are the keys to my car. Have a great race. I have my reasons. Don't worry about it. Well, it makes dramatic sense. I don't really dispute that so much. No, but like you said, you get all of the reasons for Rowdy wanting Tom to drive his car. Tom Trickle. Tom Trickle. <laughs> Cole Cruz. And then you never hear I from him I just noticed again. that. Reverse the first names and it's TT and CC. Okay, hold on. Let me just suck up the bits of my head so I can blow them back out again. <laughs> yeah. You even get the scene of Nicole Kidman at the end of the race once Tom Cruise has won. When he gets out of the car. When he gets out of the car. <laughs> I thought you weren't going to watch the race. I lied. You think at that point Rowdy should just be coming up behind her, high-fiving him. Like, hey, you Where saved my he? family. <laughs> nope. Maybe he can't fly. He can't go on planes, I guess. He's got to stay home because his CTE is so bad. I guess. Okay, well then give me the shot of him watching the race on TV or something. Exactly, that's what I'm saying, yeah. It's not like Michael Rooker was a busy actor. It wasn't like they cast Nicholson or somebody and we can't get him this day. Although, interestingly, we talk about Cruise doing important movies before this. One thing you got to say about Tom Cruise, whether you like him or not, especially through most of his career, maybe not so much the more recent times, he was at this point working with big-name directors like Francis Ford Coppola years before this. Spielberg was years later. He would work with him a few times. Scorsese was, of course, Color of Money. But also big-name actors, legends. Newman and Color of Money in 86. Hoffman and Rain Man in 88. Duvall in this 1990. Nicholson 92 and A Few Good Men. Hackman in The Firm in 1993. Almost every movie he was making, he was working with some of the best actors who've ever lived. Whether he held his own or not is debatable, but at least he wasn't saying, well, I'm the star. No, you're not casting Nicholson or Newman. Well, he couldn't really do that in The Color of Money, I guess. But by the time we got to this movie, he could write his own ticket, and he was daring to work with big-name actors. And I tip my hat to him for even trying it, because a lot of other big stars wouldn't. For all you can rag on him for a lot of his eccentricities and weirdnesses, the one thing that I have consistently heard in my periodic movie fandom over the years is that a, he has a sense of humor about himself. I think so too, yeah. And B, he's not the egocentric movie star that you describe, is that he's got a lot of time for the people around him that he doesn't need necessarily, even though he is a massive star, but maybe he's got enough knowledge about himself and his place in the world to understand that he is a 
fucking huge celebrity, it doesn't matter if he's not necessarily the most talented actor on the Let screen. Let me learn from them. Let the movie be better by having those big name actors be in their yeah. roles. And the fact is, he's got enough charisma about himself and he's got enough innate ability that even if he's not necessarily the best actor, he's still a great guy to watch on the screen. He's a great movie star. He's one of the greatest movie stars really we've is. ever seen. He's certainly in the modern era. He's kind of like Clark Gable, I guess, in that way. Clark Gable's not the best actor of all time, but yeah. as a movie star, he was. He was a box office draw in the 30s and 40s, and he was just a star. It wasn't really about acting so much. John Wayne's another example of that. Yeah, and I think he is legitimately dedicated to making the best movie. Not Something. so much in this case, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe not in this case. This might have been a bit of a passion project because he got all excited about cars. It but, was. That's what I came down to. But yeah. generally, I think he wants to make the best movie you can make, and that often involves bringing in some great actors around you. I legitimately like watching his movies, and they might not all be home runs. They're usually entertaining, though. This is more of a bunt single than anything. Mm -hmm. I think if we were both big racing fans, we would probably probably appreciate this this a lot more. That goes back to the whole Talladega Nights comparison, is that a lot of the actual racing sequences, I think, are comparable. Minus the crash. The crash in Days of Thunder is pretty spectacularly shot. Vicious, yeah. It is vicious, and it is unblinking. I don't think it's digital either, because digital is just getting to be a thing around this time, so it's probably real. If it was digital, then I, I am super impressed for 1990. I took it to be practical effects. No, I think it's practical. Kind. The difference is Talladega Nights, I find a legitimately hilarious movie, and that really captures my attention from that perspective. I don't care enough about racing. Once you take those laughs away, there were stretches of this movie my attention was waning a little bit just because there wasn't a lot of character interaction going on. He's turning on. left. He's still turning left. All right, He's is, doing it quickly. <laughs> this is lap 68. Go high. Go low. Go high again. There's more to it than that. All but right. that's, it is a pretty basic sport with respect to race fans. I'm sure there's a lot of little details. In oh, it. of course there is. But there's only so much you can do. You go the same direction, you turn left. Yeah, of course, like you said, there's a lot more that goes into it. One thing I did appreciate, though, and I thought this was a cute moment, going back to something, harkening back anyway, to the old school roots of NASCAR, like a lot of the handcrafted nature of these cars, and how you have to really play within the rules of things in NASCAR. And Tom Cruise's character speaks to this earlier on. He would never win in the open wheel circuit because the teams with the most money to spend would just build the best cars and would just win. Calling them stock is not correct, and Duvall's character says that. These cars are pimped out, but you can only work within a very specific set of parameters. And you see Duval's character with John C. Riley when they're building the car. You know, they're holding the molds up to it. And that's because you have to have certain specs on your car. You can't make it way more aerodynamic than your competitors, so it has to follow certain parameters. So they're making sure their car is compliant. But you get Robert Duval's character saying, all right, I'm going to cut off half a centimeter here. Like, you're still going to be within the rules of the sport, but I'll make maybe the fuel line extra long so there's a little bit of extra fuel hidden in yeah. there. He's talking to the car. Okay, that's clever, good right? Scene. It's a good scene. And you understand why Harry Hogg is legitimately a good mechanic. He knows the sport. He's a good mentor. What about Harry's muted reaction when Cole wins at the end at Daytona? Is it because he now he has to keep being a pit boss? Is that his problem? He doesn't really want to be? You had mentioned earlier that it sounded like Harry tried to cover up the crash that killed Buck's dad. Or at least run away and be a farmer like Thanos. (laughs) Yeah, be a farmer. (laughs) Tom Cruise's character and Duvall's character have a bit of fight about that when he's trying to get him back in the pit for that Daytona race. You cut corners here, that's really the cause, blah, 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 blah. So at that point, Harry Hogg is effectively an outcast from the sport that he presumably loves. Because it sounds like he's been doing it a very long time. He knows every ins and out of the sport. He's the Mick of NASCAR at this point. He turned Tom Cruise single-handedly into a greasy, fast, not Italian tank, but you know, whatever. He turned him a into trickling a trickling tank. Trickling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's a gross image. The alliteration again. Uh, Tom trickled 
tank. He already had his redemption shot when he joined the Trickle team. Team Trickle. They won some races, then Cole crashes out. It looks like it's over. But now he's won the World but Series. Now he's back. And he doesn't know how to handle winning the World Series yeah. or the Super Bowl? Yeah, it's more just like stunned, holy shit, this is real, this is happening, I'm back, this is a dream, more so than, uh, fuck, I gotta deal with this guy. And he wins a foot race at the very end. Freeze frame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is another great callback to Talladega Nights. We right, that's right. Like foot race at the end. <laughs> None of that counts though in Talladega Nights. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you liked Duval in this movie too because I knew he was good, but seeing it again for the whole hour and fifty or so minutes, I was even more impressed than I had been before. He really... He's one of the more underrated great actors. I think most people that know movies would say, "Yeah, Robert Duval is a good actor. He's not one of the stars of the business, but he's always good." And I don't think you can find a bad performance by him. Certainly not very often. And even in this bad movie, he's not bad in it at all. He's the best he, thing I would say acting He is the it? best thing acting. I was going to say, there's no question. I thought Carrie Elwes, in the limited role, did a good job of playing yeah. a heel. An unrepentant, out for number one kind of... Yeah. An aggressive guy. asshole, even more yeah. so. Well, Rowdy was aggressive, too, but Rowdy does a redemption arc. He had done The Princess Bride as his ultimate hero not that long before, and then Glory the year before this. Again, a meaningful movie, followed by a meaningless <laughs> movie. Glory for him and Born on the Fourth of July for Cruise, both war movies, both the year before this and then the year after they're making this. But nothing anything wrong with making a popcorn movie. But... They needed a palate cleanser, right? They really <laughs> did, I guess. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about Tony Scott's direction, incidentally? We'll talk about him, then we'll wrap here. He committed suicide in 2012, and it's shitty we lost him. He wasn't young or anything, but he still had some movies ahead of him, I think. Ridley Scott is the artist of the two of them, but Tony Scott made the movies I like more, including, as I said before, Enemy of the State and even Top Gun. I own something like six of his movies. Really? True Romance is another one. I like that one. What did I think about the direction? I didn't have any real thoughts one way or the other. i got to be honest with you. Well, it's pretty much where you put the cameras, what direction. It's more than that, but where you put the camera in the end is the big thing, and he had to fight with his producers and his writer about it. The movie looked fine. It looked pretty good. It looked like Tony Scott where he had his... Weird-looking rooms sometimes, and his fans and his Venetian blinds. As critiqued as I think this movie has been for its portrayal of NASCAR, I thought the way they shot a lot of the action scenes of racing was pretty good. As a non-race fan, I thought it was well shot. Beyond that, let's hit the beats we need to hit to sort of establish the relationships and the motivations to get to the big climactic race, and here we are, and okay, there we go, done. It was a very by-the-book arc, right? Talk to me, Tony. Talk to me, Tony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one interesting scene that went unremarked on, but I think potentially had some real implications as far as Tom Cruise's character generally, is when he's in the MRI machine, he's like, somebody talk to me. It's too quiet. I don't see anybody when I'm in the car, but there's always somebody talking to me. The man has just been in a, a traumatic accident, and he mm-hmm. could potentially be devastatingly injured. We don't know at that point. It's understandable to be scared and to want to have some reassurance. It was the kind of plaintive request that sounded like, I can't be alone. Somebody help me. Like, say something. Tell me what to do. That's what happens in Jerry Maguire with this character. Hmm. And there's a movie that, as we said, I think we talked about this in other podcasts, that doesn't deal with CTE very well at all, because clearly Cuba Gooding Jr. has it. Oh. Or at least <laughs> yeah. he has concussions. So 100% he, he got a concussion. He's not going through what Rowdy's going through in this movie, but he went through concussions. And in the big scene at the end of that movie, he should not be allowed to just walk and act normal. He's messed up. And he should be off the field. So at least this movie actually surprisingly deals with that issue better than Jerry Maguire. But in both movies, the character, yeah, he can't be alone in his own head. In a movie that didn't delve a lot into the headspace of characters, and in some instances like we've talked about, particularly with guys like Buck, probably could have very easily gone that route. It stood alone in a lot of respects as one of those instances where you got a little bit of a glimpse into the underlying psyche of one of the characters that didn't directly relate to racing. 
Yeah. It talked about him as a person more so than just as an entity in a race car that I thought was a little bit interesting, but I don't know what to make of it, so maybe it doesn't mean anything. Some surprisingly touching moments, but maybe that's yeah. because they were writing on the fly. The movie was nominated for one Oscar only. It was Best Sound, that's appropriate. Lost to Dances with Wolves, and it's very loud. Maybe 50s where I put my amp for a movie that's relatively normally loud. I started at maybe the mid-40s in this movie, and I had it down to maybe 30, 32 before it was over because it was just blowing out the damn room. Are you saying that Dances with Wolves did outrun the thunder? It outran the thunder. This movie lied. Tom Cruise must hate Kevin Costner ever since. It took away <laughs> the one Oscar we could have had. It is a good sound movie, no doubt about that. Probably should have been nominated for sound effects as well. Yeah. All right, we talked about scoring already in these phallic symbols, motorcycles, and cars, and I say, oh, yeah, you better be scoring. <laughs> and I think you probably agree, do you not? I also like the fact that they found a way, much like Top Gun, to have that bedroom scene with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. where, again, he's playing with her body. With I'm teaching about packets. drafting. Yeah. No one else knows about drafting but me and Harry. Why not? That's so dumb. How was your beer? It was very good, Ryan. The transmission was indeed live. The Johnson rod was in place. It did not over-rev the hops in this case, so it was very much in the zone. You didn't done it deliberate? Done it deliberate. Done it deliberate. I pressed the magic button and it told me that I was well within the RPM range. I just drafted behind your solo cup the whole way, and it really kept me cruising solo through cup the finish. Is, solo cup's empty. i got to go get another drink, I guess. Okay, in two weeks, it'll be May 30th. So we have three podcasts this month. That's a rarity for us. Doesn't happen very often. The trifecta. And it'll be the first day of the NBA Finals. So we're going to talk about the quintessential basketball pitcher, Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Space Jam in forever, but it's on Netflix. And as we've said many times in this podcast, we'll be more apt to cover something on Netflix than if we have to pay for it, like I do with Days of Thunder. <laughs> and you have to pay for it as well, yeah, Days of Thunder. Yeah. So I'm at MovieFiend51 on Twitter. He is at ScoringAtMovies on Twitter. We are on Spotify. We are on TopNerdProject.com. Of course, every episode we've ever done, well over 300 in total between Chris and I, Bev and I, and then other podcasts. I don't even know what the number is. I should look, I guess. But anyway, we'll be back in two weeks with Space Jam. Until then, take it easy, dudes. Robert Duvall, breathe. I know that you will.